You're listening to the Converging Paths podcast, brought to you by Asia House and the Barakat Trust, with the support of the Al Tajir Trust and the Aga Khan Trust for Culture. Hello, this is your host, Juan de Lara, Ultra Manager at Asia House. Today, we're very pleased to have as our guest, Christopher Walton Steer, who is currently the Head of Communications at the Aga Khan Foundation in London. Christopher is a travel photographer and writer, and between July and November 2019, he traveled from London to Beijing overland, working on a project on the Silk Roads, which is currently exhibited in Granary Square at King's Cross in London until 16th of June. This exhibition was also created in partnership with Alhan Foundation. And today we have here Saif al-Rashidi, director of the Barakat Trust, who is going to help us to delve into the fantastic journey Christopher experienced and to discover the many things he learned during these months. Hi, Christopher, and thanks a lot for being on our podcast series. We're really happy to have you, and it's a pleasure to hear about you and your work. So to start with, can you tell us what you actually do and just give us an overview about this project, about the Silk Road? Sure. Well, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. As you said, my name is Christopher Wilton Steer. I'm the head of communications for the Aga Khan Foundation in the UK. I'm also an independent photographer. And the thinking behind this exhibition was to really tell a story about the Silk Road, about a variety of different people, places and cultures that can be found along it. Talking a little bit about its history, its heritage, uh, the contributions various civilizations and nations have made to shared human endeavor. And also to talk about the work of um, the Aga Khan Development Network along it. Uh, we work in many different sectors from kind of you know, energy access to the restoration of historic buildings, healthcare, food security, climate change. So this is really a broad sweeping narrative about the Silk Road in the past, uh, today, and, and, and also where it's going in the future. Thanks. Well, can you tell us what the Silk Road actually is? Sure. Well, I'm sure a lot of listeners have heard the term the Silk Road, and it really dates back to about 138 BCE when Tang Dynasty sent one of its generals westward in search of uh, to make cult cultural and economic ties with the peoples of Central Asia. And in doing so, he really set in motion this sort of transcontinental trade route that would link China with, uh, well, Central Asia, the Middle East and the West, along which people, goods and ideas would flow. And of course, things like the printing press moved from the east to the west, gunpowder, the magnetic compass, all sorts of different technologies, of course, goods like grain, leather, and of course, silk, and ideas, of course, too, and religions. And so 2000 years ago, you would have Romans garbed in Chinese silk, and you would have coins minted in Rome with the face of Caesar being used for, for barter in spice markets in southern India. And so for about 1500 years, it was really, as Peter Frankman describes it, the axis on which the earth spun. So really, a lot, a lot of the more networked cities along it would become centers of, of culture and learning. And in some, you'd have ignited kind of golden ages. And so you'd have this amazing kind of uh, cultural explosion along it. And, and then by about the 16th century, they became less pr prominent due to maritime trade links, which were safer, quicker, and probably less expensive. And so it, some of the Silk Road and it, 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 its exchange and trade that flowed along it really lost some of its luster. But that, that legacy of exchange never really ended. And then today, as some will have heard of, China is investing 
trillions of dollars, along with many partners who are part of the Belt and Road Initiative. And so the Silk Roads are really rising again and becoming more and more interest again. These huge infrastructure networks, roads, bridges, rails, pipes, connecting Europe and China once again. So there's a sort of renewed interest in the Silk Road today. And this exhibition is, is part of that. Thanks. I was intrigued to find that actually your travel, your journey started in Venice. So can you tell us why Venice is the first starting point along your journey and where you went from there? Sure. Well, you know, Venice was one of the uh, westernmost hubs of the the Silk Road trade, a sort of terminus of sorts. And, and, you know, Venice, it was established in the 7th century as this lagoon city. But by the 15th century, it started to develop very very um, strong trade links with the Safavids in Iran and the Mamluks in Egypt and Syria and the Ottomans of Turkey. So through those trade links, it wasn't just, of course, goods that flowed into, into uh, Venice, but ideas too. And so you see all sorts of influences, especially from the East in the food of Venice and in in its architecture. You'll see in some of the, um, the domes of, there's one church in particular, the dome at the top of its spire looks very much like um, kind of Mamluk era, mausolea in Cairo on the, the lanterns on top of St. Mark's Cathedral. Some art historians say echo those that you find at the top of minarets in Cairo. And then of course, on, on the Doge's Palace, you have these amazing lozenges of tile work which cover the whole thing which is pretty unusual in in European architecture and but you see that type of tile work and patterning on buildings in uh, in Uzbekistan and the belief is that this is a sort of pastiche of of what was happening in Ilkhanid dynasty in, in Uzbekistan and these ideas were brought along the Silk Road similarly in, in paintings of the Renaissance you find those beautiful blue pigment the Madonna is usually garbed in and uh, of course at that time in the in the 16th century when those paintings were being produced using pigments from lapis lazuli you know, the only place in the world where that was being mined at the time was in northern Afghanistan and eastern Tajikistan. So these were traveling 6,500 kilometers down the Silk Road to Venice and then ground up and turned into these beautiful paintings. So there's this real culture and legacy and it, of, of exchange in Venice. And that, that's what particularly drew me to it. And I wanted to capture through my photographs. And moving on from Venice, you went on quite a long journey by foot, I believe. And can you tell us a bit about where you went, uh, what it was like, and some of the more unfamiliar and memorable things that you found there? Sure. Well, I, I'd like to say I did it uh, all, all on foot, but that's not quite true. It was mostly by car and by uh, train and bus, and if the camel was needed, then camel also. But yes, I travelled about uh, 40,000 kilometres, really actually from London to Beijing through 16 countries. And so Venice was one of my first stops and then crossed the Adriatic down the Dalmatian coast through um, uh, Dubrovnik and uh, into Bosnia and Herzegovina to the, to the city of Mostar with its beautiful Starry Most Bridge, uh, which was an old town which was partly restored by the Aga Khan Trust for Culture after the, the war in the 90s. And then through the Balkans, through um, Montenegro, Serbia, uh, Bulgaria, and then into Turkey across Turkey, Istanbul, and to the southern cities along the Syrian border, uh, Gaziantep, San Liofa, uh, Mardin, and then to eastern Anatolia, to Lake Van, where you have this wonderful Christian heritage from the 10th century from the old Armenian Christian kingdoms, and then across the border into Iran, into Tabriz, 
where they have the largest covered marketplace in the world, where Marco Polo stayed in the 13th century at one of its 22 caravanserais. You know, there's still people using abacuses in, in that bazaar. It's a really wonderfully old fashioned place. And then down to Sultan Iye, where the Mongol general Oljaitu built his mausoleum in 1312 uh, after he had converted to Islam and brought with him these this kind of you know Central Asian architectural aesthetic. You see these beautiful turquoise domes and stylized Kufic calligraphy around its drum. And then through Tehran into Isfahan, beautiful Isfahan with those mesmerizing mosques, which were partly partly decorated by Shah Abbas I using artisans that he brought in from China because they had such incredible skill in producing geometric tile work or, or patterns. And then to the south through Yazd and into the Lut Desert, the hottest place on earth where it was about 55 degrees and about 70 degrees, sorry, that's Celsius, um, for about further down the road. So it was kind of nauseating heat, but I had to go and see it. It looks like the surface of Mars there. And then up north through Mashhad and into Turkmenistan, where you have these crazy city of Ashgabat, where it's this marble clad city with this super futuristic architecture, which actually kind of blends this Islamic architectural motifs is, uh, you know, geometric motifs, but with kind of Soviet futurism, which is uh, really spectacular. And then across the Karakum Desert into Uzbekistan, into those beautiful cities of Kiva, Bukhara, Samarkand, real Silk Road heartland there. And then into into, uh, Kyrgyzstan, those lush sweeping valleys. It's like a land before time there. It's where I I stayed in a beautiful yurt in Songkul, and then into, into Tajikistan, Murugab, in this very high plateau where it's uh, pretty hard to breathe. The, the mountains there are, are kind of very gentle where it's very high. And then when you get into the lower Pamirs, they're more sort of violently burst out of the earth. And then, uh, and then of course, I, I couldn't cross over the border to Afghanistan because of security concerns. So I did actually have to take a flight at this point. I had to make my way back to Dushanbe and then took a 7,000 kilometer detour via Dubai to get to Pakistan, uh, landed in Islamabad and then went up to Baltistan in the north where you've got the Himalayas, Hindu Kush and Karakoram mountains meeting. It's a truly dramatic, amazing place. You have these phenomenal mountains, some uh, several over 7,000 meters, K2, uh, Rakapushi, Nangaparbat, uh, Dirin Peak, Golden Peak, you know, these things, these sort of legendary mountains where um, uh, all sorts of beautiful forts up there, several restored by the Trust for Culture, and you can stay at some of them. And then up the Karakoram Highway to the Kunjarab Pass, the highest paved border crossing in the world, and you can see this giant gateway, which is uh, in the middle of nowhere with these Chinese flags billowing from it. And that's the gateway into China, into Xinjiang province, into Tashkorgan, into Kashgar, this legendary Silk Road town, which was the sort of gateway for Chinese traders going to the markets of Central Asia and vice versa. And then across the Taklamakan Desert, into the Gobi Desert there, across to Xi'an, which spent a lot of time in the Muslim quarter there, um, which was one of the capitals of the, the, the ancient capitals of China. And then finally to Beijing. Sorry, that probably went on a little bit, but uh, <laughs> uh, hopefully some descriptive powers there give you a sense of, of what, what was along the way. How long did it take you? Yeah, it took me four months. And so I really didn't spend more than a two or three days at most places, which is not ideal. Six months would have been uh, preferable, but I had a bit of a time limit. So, so four months it was. And were there any specific places or ways of living that 
particularly striking or thought-provoking as someone coming from a city like London? Yeah, I think I often talk about Kyrgyzstan as a, as a, as a country that really uh, blew me away. It just, you know, it's never quite what you imagine it's going to be. And it was just these vast valleys, you know, much more gentle landscapes than Tajikistan, which has much, or, or northern Pakistan, which has much sharper, taller mountains, but just sweeping valleys, beautiful, tons of horses in them, camels, yak. And of course, you know, in the rural areas, a, a lot of areas are, are where semi-nomadic people live. So just little white yurts dotting the landscape and and, and then they move with the seasons. So when it gets uh, too cold, move on to the next place and you pack it up. And, and, and your sort of touch on earth is very gentle and it, it's, it's a very harmonious way to live. And I had never witnessed or experienced something quite like that before. And uh, I found myself just wandering for, for hours just uh, in, my, in my own thoughts, but in these spectacular landscapes and took lots of photographs of horses and, and horsemen and uh, it's just a different way of life there, but uh, I, was, I, was, I really enjoyed it, my experience. And you told me that you actually slept in a yurt. How was that bit of it? Yes, well, it was pretty cold. I mean, the interior is lovely and uh, beautifully colourful and, you know, plenty of space. But uh, after dinner, I was getting pretty nippy. And so I, I went to my yurt, got into bed, realised it was pretty, pretty cold in the yurt. So I was wearing all my clothes and I was in a sleeping bag and they had lots of rugs. So I put all of that on and didn't get a huge amount of sleep because it was pretty chilly. But then at about four or 5 a.m., uh, well, the, the, the entrance to the yurt opened and uh, I could see, I was, no one had warned me that somebody would be coming, but um, I suddenly saw this man's face at the door and it was glowing with this coals that he had brought. And he, there was a stove in the yurt. So he fired that up and uh, that, that was a welcome um, respite from the cold as soon as that warmth started to fill up the earth. And when you were describing the journey that you took, which people traveled for centuries, it's quite an extensive route or routes. And I was wondering what kind of infrastructure made that possible? I mean, was there an infrastructure or did you just, the travelers hop along from one place to the next, hoping to find places to stay? And I mean, mm. how well prepared was it in medieval times or even in ancient times? Uh, well, I think different parts of the route uh, were, were well better serviced than others at different points in history. But there are some, certainly from Turkey and Iran, uh, there are still many caravanserais still exist today. And I uh, visited a few in, in both countries. And they were typically kind of travel lodges where merchants and travelers would, would rest, uh, would wash. They, uh, there was usually a mosque there so they could pray. There was a, a vet who, would look, who could look after your horses or your camels. You would share gossip and news. And you, could, you were also outside the cities uh, required to quarantine in some of these um, and because, of course, the plague and other illnesses traveled these routes with the people that, that, that traveled along them. And these caravanserai were typically built about 30 kilometers apart. Um, so that's a day's journey, more or less. And, um, and in, in, in Turkey, some of them are still, you can go and still stay in some of them. And you can go to, there, some have restaurants still in them. So it's amazing to see that their use is still, whilst not perhaps exactly the same, is still partially the same. And so that, that, that was wonderful to see. And, you know, I, I read somewhere that in 
there, there were over a thousand caravanserai in Iran during the Safavid period in the say 16th century. So they really invested in those too. In Kyrgyzstan, I found one in the middle of nowhere called Tashrabat, about 200 kilometers from the Chinese border. And presumably there were others perhaps near it, but um, that was pretty isolated. And then in parts of northern Pakistan, where the Karakoram Highway is, is going, on, on the opposite side of the valley, you can sometimes see this little line snaking the side of the mountains. And that's really an original Silk Road road or tract. And it's uh, perilous. You know, it, it was the way that people traveled around the mountains before the Karakoram Highway was built in the 1970s and 80s uh, by the Chinese and Pakistanis. And and so amazing to see parts of that, which has been partially restored in, in places as well. And with such a network and, a, and this idea of having caravanserais every 30 kilometers, did you find commonalities in the culture uh, in some ways across the route that you travel? Well, I think as soon as you reach Turkey and I suppose, you know, the culture of hospitality, whether it's it's part a geographical thing, it's partly, a, I think, an Islamic thing is, you know, people, people want to offer you tea or coffee or food or whatever it is. So there's a wonderful hospitality culture that I encountered from Turkey sort of onwards. It's also interesting kind of tea culture that I suppose Western Europe has transitioned from, I mean, I suppose tea is still drunk a lot, but it's kind of a coffee culture and, and Turkey has both, of course, but people will drink tea all day long in those lovely little glass, uh, little small glasses and similar in, in Iran as well. And then I guess Central Asia is a real tea drinking culture as well, lots of green tea. And, and so there are those kind of commonalities there. And is, are there any rituals associated with the drinking of tea or the serving of tea? I'm not sure, but you're expected to drink a hell of a lot of tea. There's constant, constant tea being poured. So... Um, Maybe the trick is not to finish your cup each time. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I met some people from northern Pakistan once and I was very surprised to see them put salt in their tea. And I said, I mean, no, no, you've mistaken it for sugar. And then I realized <laughs> that even though it's a drink that's drunk around the world, people drink it and consume it differently. Absolutely. Yes. I, I think I had some of that salty tea when I was there. <laughs> well, I guess... What's of great interest to me is also the process of capturing your journey as a photographer. And also selecting photos is also about the experience of what you saw. So I wondered if you could tell me about a memorable experience. And also, if I gave you the difficult task of, of choosing one photo to capture your whole journey of four months, what would that photo be? Oh, difficult one. Well, I suppose, you know, a memorable experience, one might be, you know, when I travel from northern Pakistan to, um, to China, the last sort of town, this frontier town is called Sost. And there's a, what they call a dry port there, which is where the trucks are all kind of processed before they cross over the border both ways. Um, and it's kind of like an old Western town, you know, you've got these roads and, and there's shops on either side of them and people are bartering, buying cigarettes and there's signs everywhere sort of proclaiming the Chinese-Pakistani friendship. And to get to China across the Kundra Pass, you have to take a minibus um, unless you're a trucker of some sort. So I sat in the front seat with, with this old man and he was, you know, Pakistani man wearing a Shawar Kameez Pakol hat, you know, and uh, I had some... Dried 
fruit, some some apricots and cherries, which you which are pretty plentiful up in the north of Pakistan. So I shared those with him. We didn't speak each other's languages, but he kind of you know he 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 was appreciative with his nodding. And then and then once we reached Tashkurgan, we kind of went our different ways. And then several days later, I was in Kashgar and walking around, photographing people, and uh, and I saw him outside a shop bartering with this Uyghur. Uh, shopkeeper I think he was a Uyghur shopkeeper he was wearing a traditional hat and and they they didn't even speak each other's languages but they were kind of you know they were using sign language and they clearly knew each other quite well because they were sort of you know almost fighting with each other in a funny way and and the old man had a suitcase full of like antiques which he was showing the guy and they were negotiating prices and and it was like extraordinary. I was kind of like, I'm literally witnessing this kind of cross-border trade, which has happened for millennia. And it's still happening, you know, in this very small way now with this old man still crossing the border, selling his stuff to this shopkeeper in Kashgar. And it was really extraordinary kind of scene to, to witness. And then when he finished, I, I, I sort of followed him a little, no, left, as he left the shop and tapped him on the shoulder and he just, you know, turned around and then this, he, you know, wasn't quite sure. And then suddenly a big smile of recognition appeared on his face and he sort of jumped up and bear hugged me and, and you know, had this wonderful moment with, with this man. And, and then, you know, we sort of walked away kind of looking back at each other, sort of, you know, looking, looking out for each other. And, and yeah, it was just a wonderful experience and moment that. And then what image sort of sums it all up? And image I use a lot is is uh, is of the the ceilings in that I shot in Iran. Uh, there's one in the Sheikh Lotfullah Mosque in Isfahan, and you know it's I, I like it because it not only demonstrates the sort of brilliance of the artists who produced it in the 16th century, but also the principles and what what it's based. You know these just Islamic geometric principles that were born out of advanced mathematics coming out of the Islamic world at that time. And, you know, part of the heritage of, of that part of the world. But also, I, I, from what I understand, is that some of these techniques and, and methods were also informed by Chinese artisans. So it wasn't a sort of an isolated artistic style. It, it brought in different influences. And that's really what this exhibition and what my interest is about. It's about those links between different cultures and what we learn from each other. It's interesting what you say. One thing that also piques my curiosity is, you work for the Aga Khan Foundation, which is a development organization. Mm-hmm. So from the perspective of the Aga Khan Foundation, why is an exhibition like yours important and relevant today? Mm. Well, I think for our organization, the, 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 the value of pluralism is incredibly important. And uh, that value being that our differences is what make us stronger and should be cherished. And so this exhibition is, is fully a demonstration of part of what of that, or that it instills that feeling as you walk around it and see some of the photographs. And, and also that th- these are regions, particularly Central Asia, I mean, South Asia people know, probably know quite a lot about. But Central Asia, from a UK perspective, is not an area that is visited that often. Um, it's not an area that's known about that much, um, but it is an area of great significance. Um, historically and increasingly in the in the future and so it's an area we work in and we want to raise the profile of that of that region and what kind of work do you do in that in those regions Mm. in Tajikistan for example well it's really Tajikistan and Afghanistan because what demarcates the border is the Pianj River and this was one region 
but one is called Gorno Badakhshan, one's called Afghan Badakhshan. And you'll have cousins or brothers and sisters or family members on both sides of the border. And in 1895, I think it was, during the Pamir Convention, British and Russian empires separated these two areas. And their development trajectories after that are fundamentally are hugely different. The Soviets invested a lot in Tajikistan comparatively, in infrastructure, in education, roads, etc., um, healthcare. And on the Afghan side, it's a completely different story. And so AKF works a lot in both of these regions. Uh, but one of the um, one of the interesting projects is around uh, cross-border trade. And so um, over the last 15, 20 years, we've built with our partners six cross-border bridges that cross the river and uh, at either ends are markets and traders can trade at them visa-free. And also Afghans who need critical health care instead of traveling 200 miles through the mountains uh, on treacherous roads to get to the nearest health center can cross over the bridge and get emergency medical care from Tajik doctors again visa-free. So, I mean, this is one example. Another is around the provision of energy in Tajikistan after the fall of the Soviet Union and and the, the, the civil war that followed. A lot of the energy infrastructure in eastern Tajikistan fell into massive disrepair so that only 13% of the population there had access. And of course, it resulted in a lot of deforestation, um, and which then has subsequent issues around you know, landslides and all the rest of it, um, because people needed food to cook and keep warm. And so since 2002, AKF, with uh, a company called Pamir Energy, which is part of the Agakan Development Network, has been restoring that infrastructure and expanding it so that today, 96% of people have access to electricity. And in, since 2008, they've been exporting it across the border to Afghanistan to communities who have never had electricity before. So it's an extraordinary kind of catalytic impact that having electricity does, as, as we can all take for granted every, every day of our life today. Um, and I met a lady in, in eastern Tajikistan called Hamida um, a, a couple of years ago, and she had just moved back to a village called Day. And she had been living in Russia since 2006 with her family, as a lot, as a lot of Tajiks do work in Russia and send remittances back outside of Moscow. And she had come back and I said to her, you know, what, what's brought you back? And she said, well, we now have electricity, so I don't need to go and, you know, wash clothes in the stream. I don't need to go and find firewood, which would take up several hours of the day. You know, I'm free to spend time with my family, to, to have another income or, or take a job somewhere. So, you know, the, the, these types of projects are really catalytic and, and, and fascinating to meet some of the people whose lives they've been impacted as well. And the semi-nomadic ways of life that you mentioned, for example, how fragile are they? I mean, is there a possibility they might disappear? Or are there ways that one can benefit from electricity and modern infrastructure, but also retain traditions that have survived for so long and are so sensitive to the earth and to the mm. seasons and to nature? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I'm not sure I can give a full answer to it, but, you know, the, the power of modernity and, and, and this sense of us of this sort of homogenous lifestyle that we're heading towards is it does not bode well for the kind of diversity in the world today and the value that that brings us. I just give one example because for the semi-nomadic communities, some of them in Kyrgyzstan, for example, one thing the foundation is doing to support those in a way is to create uh, mobile libraries and mobile early childhood development centers so that as those communities move with the seasons, 
They also have yurts that, or, that contain books and learning materials and teachers who are trained with, within the communities can travel with them to ensure that children have access to great learning materials and, uh, and, and opportunities as they, as education opportunities as they start to grow older. To make it easier for them to benefit from things like education without having to sacrifice their traditional lifestyle to do so? Yeah, exactly. And you also mentioned that your exhibition includes crafts and I mean, that you're going to have kind of a bazaar with the exhibition. Does your work also involve reviving local crafts or, or preserving traditions in that way? Mm. Well, I mean, th this is um, a great personal interest of mine, but also um, a professional interest for the, for the foundation and the broader Aga Khan Development Network. I mean, for me, uh, you know, craft, artisan crafts are, are, have a, hold a deep value in the, it, where, wherever I travel to because, you know, craft just through the techniques that people use, the technique that they might use, whether it's glass blowing or lantern making or carpet making, that technique may itself be hundreds of years old or, or even thousands of years old. The, the designs that people produce also tell stories about a, a, a communities or regions past. So really craft for me is a way of looking into the past. It's giving you a kind of telescope into the past and there's something valuable in that. And, and also of course the products that are produced, I, I tend to collect them and enjoy them. And, and so it says something about uh, our past and about our diversity and and so, you know, visually, of course, that it's very, I love to take photographs of, of artisans um, because it just looks so interesting. And then as an organization, the foundation and the Trust for Culture support artisans in all sorts of shapes, uh, shapes and forms. In, in Cairo, for example, in Al Dawal Ahma, a lot of the artisans there have been um, supported through uh, microfinance programs because the threats are there. Uh, globalization, uh, the raw cost of materials going up. Uh, changing tastes. We're losing a lot of this heritage um, every day. And so I, in some small way, I hope the photography helps raise awareness about it. But also as part of this Silk Road project, as you mentioned, we are planning on having a Silk Road bazaar uh, in the King's Cross area. It's just 10 stalls um, of uh, UK-based vendors who, who import products from artisans in Pakistan, Afghanistan, Syria, and other countries. So you'll be able to buy kind of Central Asian hats and, and beautiful homeware and all sorts of stuff. But it's a way to try to support those artisans and also link them to markets where I think there's a great interest in those sorts of products. And I mean, you took thousands of photos on your journey and how many are in your exhibition? About 160. Okay, how did you choose a selection of 160 to capture all of that? What were the thoughts in your head as you were selecting? It's a brain-numbing process. It's a painful process. I took about 50,000 photographs, so distilling that to 160 is, is hard. And often I think, how on earth did I do that? Did I just pick some random ones and just tell a story? I mean, if I was to do the exercise again, would I select something completely different. I think, you know, I, ha I had to keep in mind what my overarching narrative was. You know, I needed to things that spoke to the history of the Silk Road and, 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 its, and its role as this, uh, as this conduit of trade and flow of ideas and people and religions and wanted to show the connections between cultures. So that was the sort of overarching narrative. 
And then, you know, of course, you want to select the images that, that, that stick out the most or that you think people will, will, will are most visually pleasing. And like I mentioned about that old man, um, you know, he wasn't, it wasn't the most visually pleasing photograph. And so I had to omit that. But I hope to have a mix of people, places and cultures, really, and landscapes, because I could easily focus too much on one of those things. And so wanted to have a nice blend so that people could see the different, the diversity of faces. They could see the diversity of art and architectural styles. They could see the diversity in landscapes that you find along it. And so hopefully that comes through in the exhibition. And to be honest, I, I created a, 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 a Silk Road a Living History website because I realized that there was just, there were so many stories I could tell, so many photographs I wanted to tell to show um, that, that I wanted to create a, a kind of resource for all of that so that people, if they wanted to go a little bit deeper, um, they could. And so, whereas I will have, you know, one photograph of a ceiling from Isfahan in the website, you can find 20 of them <laughs> from different places. So uh, over time, I want that to build. And as the exhibition hopefully travels, it will continue to be a resource for those exhibitions as well. And really, the, the physical exhibition is the tip of the iceberg. The website has loads more content on there and ex uh, photo essays and all the rest of it. And presumably your exhibition will travel to places where people are quite unfamiliar with the Silk Road and the regions that you covered. What, what do you hope that the average person will get out of it? Hmm. Well, hopefully to, to get a curiosity about parts of the world that may be less familiar. I've had a lot of emails recently from people, people I don't know, just saying, wow, I want to do this. Like, how do I do it? You know, so I think encouraging others to take that path into, because it's, it's an education really for, for me doing this, um, you know, it opened up my horizons hugely and, you know, it's a, a deeply enriching experience. So there's a humility that comes with wanting to learn about other cultures and, and seeing the value of them. And, and so I hope that the exhibition sort of, you know, instills that curiosity and uh, people are keen to sort of read more about these regions and, and, um, and, and, and hopefully travel to some of them when we can again. For someone like you who presumably travels a lot, but probably not for four months, uh, taking slow means of transport, what did a journey of that sort, I mean, how did it, enable you to see the world differently? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I decided to travel over land rather than to fly because, to different places because, you know, when we fly, you know, you, you drop into these different cities, different parts of the world where things are completely foreign and alien, you know, customs, language, food, and, and that's part of the excitement as well. Um, but, but I wanted to travel over land because I wanted to experience those sort of transitions between cultures so that it felt natural where I was or hoped I would feel that way. And I did, you know, I found myself in, in far-flung Tajikistan, but I had come over land. I'd seen the landscapes change. I'd seen the customs kind of transition. And, uh, and so I felt, so, so I just felt like at home wherever I was. And so, you know, the people I, I met along the way, I mean, everybody's has, lives slightly differently, has different religions or, or, or food and customs. But, you know, we're all ultimately wanting the same things in life, which is to be happy and to, and to ensure that, you know, we and our children and whoever else are safe. And that, that sense of, uh, you know, that, that doesn't change wherever you are in the world. That, that is who we are as human beings. And, and that is the fundamental value, you know, we all share, which is a, a cherishing of life. And presumably the experience of interacting with many, many different communities over 
a long stretch of ground emphasizes that the commonalities that are greater than the differences. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to see the differences because they can be very visible um, in lots of different ways. And, and to assume, you know, it is people who live differently, you, you wonder how to fit in. And that can then be scary and make you make me react like I'm not sure I want to be here. I don't know what this is about. But, but that's a sort of fear to try and overcome that, I think, is is something we should all try to do and uh, and and when, once done and and i think it's done through showing some humility as well then suddenly a whole world of wonder and and connectedness can hopefully open up to us yeah i think being open and and willing to accept and to experience and to immerse oneself is probably the best way of discovering all these things that would otherwise be so remote and alien to us yeah, absolutely. I think that's it. That's a good overarching message of openness, for sure. So tell us, for the benefit of our listeners, where your exhibition is, for how long, and how the, you mentioned your website. Can you please also tell us what that website is? Yeah, well, it's, it's, in, it's, in, it's in Granary Square in King's Cross in London. And it's, it is, it's laid out in a linear fashion. So you, you can walk from London to Beijing or Beijing to London, depending on which end of the exhibition you uh, approach it from. And there are markings on the floor so you can see where you are and you can see where to go to next so that you can take this journey yourself. And it's up until the 16th of June. And then we're hopeful it will be um, extended, but in a new location just around the corner in Lewis Cubitt Square. And for more information on it, there's a website called www.silkroad-livinghistory.org. And there will be all the information about the exhibition and the talks around it. The, 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 there's a workshop program so you can come and do an introductory course on Islamic geometry or, or Ottoman calligraphy uh, or whatever, or the patterns of geometric patterns of Samarkand. And we're doing that in partnership with the Prince's Foundation School of Traditional Arts, which is exciting. And more information about the bazaar um, uh, as well there. So, um, yeah, please do visit. I look forward to it. And uh, thank you, Christopher, for your time. It's been delightful listening to you and um, imagining what it would be like without seeing your photos. <laughs> Thank you, Safe. It's been a pleasure talking to you too. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening.